Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. Today's episode features Associate Professor Ronak K. Kapadia from the Gender and Women's Studies Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm delighted to have Ronak on this podcast series because his work offers a different starting point to many of the debates and discussions about drones, war, and art. His first book, Insurgent Aesthetics, Security, and the Queer Life of the Forever War, is out now with Duke University Press. Ronak gave a live talk at the Media Futures Hub, which you'll hear shortly, but he joined me first for an interview to discuss his work. Ronak Kapadia, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So to start things off, I'd really just like to ask you, what brought you to study drones? Yes. Well, I would say that the art is what brought me to to drones. And, you know, I have a longstanding interest in the aesthetics and politics of Arab, Muslim, and South Asian artists in the U.S. and North America, especially after the events of 9-11. And I was in graduate school studying transnational American studies at the very moment of the sort of transnational turn in the field uh, with a sort of stronger engagement with women of color and queer of color critique. But I was also in school at the very moment of the sort of late Bush, early Obama era in which the Western media started to really proliferate stories about so-called surgical strikes and the emergence of drone warfare in AFPAC and throughout the greater Middle East. And so this move from ground troops and counterinsurgency in the Bush era to drone strikes and counterterrorism in the Obama years was really the moment in which I was starting to consolidate my project and think about late modern warfare and various alternatives in the work of um, the aesthetics and politics of these communities. So I would say that's what brought me to drones is that um, the U.S. brought me to drones and the moment in graduate school. Thanks so much. In in the talk that people are about to hear, you're going to zero in on two of those artists, uh, Wafa Bilal and Ellen O'Hara Slavic. Can you give our listeners a sense of your larger project? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this work that um, that the talk is pulled from is part of my new book project titled Insurgent Aesthetics, Security and the Queer Life of the Forever War. And broadly, this book theorizes the queer world making potential of contemporary art and aesthetics in the ongoing context of U.S. war and empire in the greater Middle East with a focus on Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan and Palestine. Um, and the book broadly analyzes how global militarized security practices have affected immigrants and refugees in the United States and how transnational visual artists in turn have exposed and contested the violence of US planetary warfare through their solo and collaborative art making. And specifically, I try to trace the work of Arab, Muslim, and South Asian diasporic multimedia artists who are grappling in their works with various aspects of the U.S. national security state's use of gendered racial violence, everything from targeted killings, including drones, to imperial confinement through the the use of military detention, um, to overt settler colonial infrastructures via the U.S. client state relation of Israel and its occupation of Palestine. And in short, Insurgent Aesthetics investigates how contemporary artists challenge violent and ongoing histories of U.S. militarism and create alternative ways of knowing, feeling, and sensing 
beyond permanent warfare. Uh, it's a really fantastic book. And I think the this term, some of the terms that you develop in the book are really powerful. And so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about this term, insurgent aesthetics. So the book illuminates um, this idea of the forever war, which is another key concept, certainly, in relationship to insurgent aesthetics. And it tries to argue that the forever war on terror um, is not only a historical period describing a series of geopolitical and military conflicts, but also an ongoing archival project, a structure of feeling, and a production of knowledge for interpreting and acting on the geopolitical alignments of the U.S. in the broader post-Cold War era. So in that sense, the forever or forever war tries to call up a fantasy sense of temporal perpetuity in wartime's violence that likewise mimics the uninterrupted and limitless spree of U.S. global war making across the long 20th century, which is really um, what I try to embed the work of these contemporary artists in that longer history. And so by insurgency and the concept of insurgent aesthetics, I'm trying to summon that longer history of subterranean and fugitive consciousness of insurgent struggle, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore has referred to as infrastructures of feeling against the forces of empire, gender racism, and capital. And this fugitive consciousness of insurgent struggle, of course, is key to making visible so as to undermine that forever war. Okay, the, one of the other terms that circulates in yeah. your book that I think is um, an important one for your analysis, but also a really interesting provocation for activist politics around drone warfare is this idea of queer calculus. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate yeah. queer calculus a little bit for us, knowing totally. that you'll people will hear a little more um, in the talk about this, I'm sure, but but just to set the stage. So, you know, another way that I'm trying to, one of these concepts that I'm trying to bring forward in the book projects is this idea of queer calculus as a critical hermeneutic. And, you know, the animating impulse behind that is to say that given the state's will toward quantified abstraction in counting without ever being accountable to those killed, diseased, displaced, traumatized, or maimed in its armed conflicts, how do we divine other more sensuous and affective ways of knowing this forever war and its inhuman violences? And so my book tries to assert that we need to demand a stranger calculus, what I'm calling a queer calculus that unsettles prevailing interpretations of the forever war, makes sensuous what's been ghosted by US technologies of extraction and abstraction, and endows the designs for seemingly impossible futures amid infinite aggression. So in that sense, a queer calculus of the forever war advances an account of both the dominant knowledge apparatuses and data logics of the U.S. security state, as well as these alternative logics, affects, emotions, and affiliations of diasporic subjects who are living and laboring in the heart of empire. So you're saying that the kind of counting work done by organizations like the Bureau of Investigative Journalism around drone, drone strikes or air wars around uh, the use of air power, um, that those kinds of uh, counting mechanisms, casualty counts of civilians and soldiers and, so, and drone strikes and so on is important, but cannot be the only means of intervention and reckoning that we need to make tactile, real, embodied sensorial, the cost of war that is pushed very, very far away from home for most, most people in the United States and the UK and, and many other places that, that enact this kind of war. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, that, that the liberal and even radical appropriation, humanitarian impulse behind uh, 
counting is extraordinarily important. And the work of all those organizations you mentioned are crucial and they're important archives that I use in my own work, but they're insufficient. And that, you know, attending to the kind of spectral and affective dimensions of war making or of death making more generally is something that we're not fully accounting for. And it's partly why we have not um, captured the political imagination in the ways that we can. And I think, you know, this moment of 2020 and COVID-19, certainly we're experiencing the numbing effects of numbers in the United States as thousands of people, our Americans are dying every week. Um, in fact, even in my talk that you're about to hear, I mentioned 170,000 deaths. And that number, of course, has um, increased just from a couple of days ago as I was preparing my remarks um, from 160. So the fact that thousands of people are dying every single day, um, you know, there's a numbing quality to that. And as horrible as that is, the, the violence that inheres in that story of the number, uh, we need something different. We need what I call in the talk um, following the work of Maka Gomez Barrios and Herman Gray, a sociology of the trace, a way of thinking about the inscriptions and sort of inaudible, inaudible dimensions of war making that the number itself cannot account for. One of the things I really appreciated about your book was its insistence on spending time with artists and creators who aren't usually summoned up in discussions about drone warfare and critical and cultural responses. Certainly, Mawish Chichdi is increasingly well-known um, and folks will hear from, from her later in this uh, series of Drone Futures podcasts and seminars if they stick with us. But many of yours are less known and I'm struck as I read, and I, and I say this having read so much material about drone warfare and critical and creative responses and coming again and again to the same the same critical interventions, the same artistic responses, uh, James Bridal's Drone Shadows, Trevor Paglin's um, Untitled Photo Series and so on. And they are important works, but they're not the only works. And, and I think it's really refreshing to see that, that, that new breadth, um, uh, at least in terms of critical attention. But I think one of, the, one of the interesting things about drone studies is the sheer breadth of disciplinary perspectives that come, that come to bear on it um, and their associated research methodologies. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the kind of research method, methods that you bring to bear. Absolutely. Well, first, let me say, Michael, thank you for noting what I think is, you know, the animating impulse behind my book project, which is to say that there is critical knowledge of the minoritarian cultural producer that we're missing in the dominant story about arts and activism around the war on terror. And that there are certain proper objects and proper artists that stand in for the work of critical commentary about war on terror, about security, surveillance, lawfare, and all the questions that you, know, that you and I both engage in our work. And what I wanted to say in this work is that the minoritarian cultural worker, the diasporic artist who has, who can trace their lineage and trace their family histories to the region that is most under siege by U.S. bombing and U.S. wars, right, has a kind of knowledge about not only the war, not only about the United States, but about the kind of global systems that is getting evacuated or elided in discussion, even critical discussions about war on terror affective politics, right? And so um, usually these artists of color in particular, and you know, we should say that the majority other than Wafabi Lal, who I write, who I write about and talk about in the talk, the talk that folks are about to hear, 
Um, everybody else is a female artist, right? A woman artist of color based in the United States or Europe who um, is navigating the global art markets in compelling and interesting ways, but is also often not thought of as a kind of proper object, object in relationship to performance studies or art history or visual culture studies or um, all the kind of scholarly interdisciplinary fields that, of course, is the work that I read. And usually when those folks show up, they're usually seen as a kind of native informant that does the work of a kind of sociological rendering um, of, you know, this is about arts of Arab Spring, or these are artists of the Middle East. And, you know, that kind of framing is something I really wanted to reject. And I wanted to flip the kind of universal particular dimensions um, that we usually think of on its head and to say, no, actually, these diasporic artists who are negotiating their estrangements to Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and all these places as they live in the diaspora, that that's part of their insurgency and that we need to actually reckon with that and pay attention to that if we want to learn something differently about the U.S. Um, architecture of global state violence in this moment. And so, of course, that necessitates a really promiscuous reading practice, scholarly or otherwise. And, you know, I am an interdisciplinary cultural theorist. I see this project as the product of transnational queer and feminist cultural studies. Its arguments and investigations are grounded in the interdisciplinary method of close reading of art and cultural production, as folks will hear in a minute in the talk. But I'm also willfully reading and sourcing secondary materials across the humanities from critical theory and critical ethnic studies, Black studies, American studies, Asian American studies, Native studies, post-colonial diaspora studies, um, as well as queer and feminist studies. Right? And part of what I'm saying is that the, the work of queer and feminist inquiry writ large, transnational and women of color and queer of color critique in particular, are crucial to the study of late modern warfare and violence um, and are often elided in most sort of studies of sort of war on terror and drone um, in the field of drone studies. So, you know, I like, I love the fact that our incipient emergent field is deeply disciplinary and that people can approach it from all of these different vantage points. And part of what I wanted to say is that in order to move away from the kind of dominant strategies and technologies of the national security state, um, we need to actually completely divorce ourselves from the state's frameworks and institutions in, in the work that we do. And the, one of the ways that I try to address that is by attending to the work of artists who are offering us this more arresting approach and that offer us a way of thinking about the sort of post 9-11 global world order as already fleeting, fragile and failing. And, you know, as I talk about, and, as, and you mentioned in the talk, in your introduction of my remarks, that there are these felicitous cracks that have appeared in the surface of the US Forever Wars architecture that are being exploited by artists and activists and cultural producers of all stripes. And these are forms of fugitivity, refusal, and rebellion that can actually be gleaned further in the critical works of art under investigation in my book. And it's partly why we need close reading, right? As opposed to a kind of sociological rendering of the art that says, these are artists who care about X. It's actually, no, let's use our methods to, to conjure the kind of criticality that we may not see otherwise on the surface. Yeah, thanks. You're really speaking to to um, everything for me in in how to approach uh, this kind of research. And I think you know some of our um, refer reference points and 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 launch pads um, theoretically and culturally um, uh, will be different. But uh, I think you and I share um, strong agreement on how to approach these kinds of questions and what the sorts of things we should be asking are, and some of the the methodological approaches that that we need to actually do otherwise, rather than to to repeat the same gestures that. Um, we're all too familiar with um, right now, which critical and resistant practice can so swiftly become um, performative um, of 
the very structures that you're attempting to critique. Uh, so it's really Absolutely. wonderful to see that not happening in your work. Um, uh, just to kind of uh, bring us to a, towards a close in this conversation, I'm wondering what piece of drone studies research has most influenced your own thinking? This is such a good question, and it, it's hard to reflect on it because, of course, these are layers of years and years of work, and it's it, the work is um, always ever-changing, and we're reading so willfully and wildly in all these times. But I will say, and I was delighted to see that she is the keynote of your upcoming drone witnessing symposium in December, but Karen Kaplan, I think the one and only Karen Kaplan, and, and also those sort of... Uh, that generation of post-colonial feminist critics, Ray Chow, um, Judith Butler, Anne McClintock, um, and Interpol Gruel, um, folks like Jesper Poir, Simone Brown, all of that world of women of color and post-colonial feminism has been so crucial for me for thinking about the kind of critical interplay between uh, war and visuality. Um, we could mention Nick Mirzoev and other folks as well. Uh, I think newer folks like Ian Shaw giving us this idea of the dronification of state violence is really beautiful and supple. So. Um, I have no, I have lots of faves, I would say, but I think Karen Kaplan, if I, someone who I go back to, who's also been a mentor to me and has um, been so supportive of my own work and, you know, her book came out, this last book came out um, just at the moment when I was done with copy edits and I couldn't really insert as much of the love and attention I've had over the years of her work since I was an undergrad in the book itself. But I think that um, she continues to be an stellar model for critical feminist mentorship and she has really helped build the field here in the US um, of this kind of work in particular. I think my answer probably would be um, Karen Kaplan's uh, Aerial Aftermaths oh, as good. well. So, so Jen, can you let us know what's next for you in your research? Yeah, so, you know, while this first book, Insurgent Aesthetics, tries to trace critical responses to the state of emergency produced by fears of national security in the US's aggressive policing and surveillance apparatus, this new book, the second book that I'm working on, tries to extend these questions on aesthetics and war to consider the state of emergence among a new generation of social justice activists, and in particular, queer and trans migrant artists and activists of color. And so I've been provisionally calling it Breathing in the Brown Queer Commons, Reimagining Collective Survival and Healing Justice in the Wilds of Imperial Decline. And broadly, the book is about studying the expressive cultures of contemporary social justice movements and visual strategies of resistance against the militarization of urban police violence and the domestic war on terror across North America. And the key question that I'm asking is how do minoritarian artists, especially queer and trans, black indigenous people of color communities living in the heart of empire, both make sense of this dying world order while also prefiguratively dreaming up those new worlds through their art making? And now, his Associate Professor Ronak Kapadia from the University of Illinois at Chicago with his talk, On the Skin, Drone Warfare, Collateral Damage and the Human Terrain. Uh, greetings, everyone from Australia to the United States. I'm really grateful for your presence, your virtual presence and time, and I'm delighted to be starting off this really excellent seminar series on drone futures. I am joining you today remotely from the great indoors on the northwest side of the city of Chicago on the ancestral lands of the Three Fires Confederacy in late summer 2020 here when um, just a couple of weeks away from our own academic school years are beginning anew and when the U.S. is truly in free fall, we might say attempting a patchwork and ill-advised series of reopening plans amidst the proliferation of the pandemic here 
and as sustained revolutionary protests continue every night, and as the sedimented traumas of this past spring sequestration have barely begun to register in our collective national consciousness, let alone our individual and differentiated body minds. Um, and what I wanna do is give you a broad overview of my new book project, Insurgent Aesthetics, and then I'm gonna spend the majority of my time offering close readings of the experimental works of art by New York City-based artist Wafa Bilal and Durham, North Carolina-based artist Ellen O'Hara Slavic. Um, so as I'm doing this, I, I should note that the major themes of my talk today are about embodied vulnerability, social porousness, bodily interdependence, unending political violence, and the terror of contagion. Of course, all concepts that now are impossible to talk about the same way after the calamitous events of 2020, after the events of blank year, right? We use that formulation so ubiquitously in our speech, especially after 9-11, that other world-bending moment in time that changed everything and yet nothing at all that spectacular occurrence that refracted all of the unresolved horrors of the 20th century's global Cold War into the new millennium. Nearly two decades later, an ever-expanding globalized biopolitical struggle of regulating, managing, and warehousing populations continues mostly unabated across the heterogeneous terrains of the greater Middle East, from Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, Algeria, Syria, Palestine, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Niger, and beyond. To say nothing of the numerous intertwined policing and security arrangements closer to home. It's difficult, if not impossible in this context, to offer a sweeping appraisal of the astounding vision and strategic expanse of Washington's worldwide counter-terror and counter-insurgent war since 9-11. But it's clear that the logics of US counterterrorism and national security now appear to permeate every crevice of the planet, underwriting an everlasting war on life itself. What Derek Gregory calls an everywhere war of the biosphere now suspiciously seems right on cue for the unanticipated upheavals of 2020, an event horizon that also threatens to amplify and exacerbate every existing form of planetary inequality and injustice. Like 9-11, the COVID-19 pandemic features a double accelerant effect, group differentiated premature death and insecurity for the global racialized underclasses and staggering accumulations of wealth and safety for the shrinking global ruling classes. As Wendy Brown swiftly summarizes, the pandemic intensifies existing vulnerabilities in a world ordered by the crude, careless powers of nation states and capitalism. So at a time when the accelerating catastrophes of global fascism, neoliberal austerity, carceral governance, and endless warfare continue to proliferate and produce gendered racialized worlds of untold anguish for those rendered suspect or disposable within this imperial world's order. How might we amplify the creative strategies that contemporary artists and cultural producers employ in service of insurgent struggles to end forever wars on terror and imagine otherwise? I've been writing for some time about the, about the need for sensuous alternatives and a politics of refreshment in the wake of unending wartime violence after 9-11. My recently published book, Insurgent Aesthetics, um, as you see here, the cover featuring the gorgeous work of Mawish Chishti, the Pakistani-American visual artist who I know will be final up um, in your seminar series later this, this term. 
Um, Insurgent Aesthetics explores the sensorial and tactile registers in the contemporary works of minoritarian and diasporic artists as antidotes to the atomizing tactics of US counterinsurgency wars in the greater Middle East and as queer feminist methodologies of rebellion and freedom. The research for my book was motivated by a supreme dissatisfaction with the dominant discourses of 21st century national security and empire, including on the ongoing global war on terror against the shape-shifting constellation of enemies and the attendant cottage industry of terrorism studies that has so impoverished our political imaginations to date. Indeed, there is so much overlapping dread and despair today that it often feels like these affective conditions have evaporated any semblance of joy, renewal, resistance, beauty, or alternatives. I sought to write a book that could intervene into this dystopian here and now by spotlighting the radical experiments, sensuous knowledges, and freedom dreams of contemporary minoritarian cultural workers responding to and complicating our collective reckoning with the state of forever war turning to the more expansive world-making knowledge practices of contemporary Arab, Muslim, and South Asian diasporic artists, what I call insurgent aesthetics, inaugurates new ways of understanding the politics of security and freedom from the perspective of those most dispossessed by U.S. war-making and their diasporic kin. It feels especially apt to revisit some of their concerns now as an incalculable number of people are slowly starved of touch and intimate sociality in mundane quarantine. Today, the 11th of August represents exactly five months and counting for me and many people here in the US. While clearly distinct from the disaggregating horrors of carceral confinement or murderous drone killings and imperial warfare, the entire human species is experiencing uneven levels of terror and separation this year by a contagious virus that is itself the product of the relentless global racial capitalist development and devastation of natural environments an airborne sickness whose differential effects have been swiftly weaponized by authoritarian regimes across the world in order to exacerbate nearly every major existing planetary inequality, including, of course, within the United States. This dystopian here and now certainly appears to be playing out like a horror film, if not also like a necropolitical guidebook for the aspirational fascists in our midst. And yet, while the U.S. and its allied global security policing regimes around the world have long facilitated these kinds of murderous divisions and disorders, their forever wars also often produce the conditions of possibility for imagining an insurgent otherwise. Even as the pandemic has made touch and sociality ever more precarious and uncertain, laden with risk, we're seeing the revitalization of powerful forms of coalition and sensuous affiliation in the United States. We're witnessing the efflorescence of powerful forms of coalition, as I mentioned, and the efflorescence of Black-led rebellion in particular against the anti-Black carceral violence of the racial colonial state. These race radical freedom struggles are intersectional, internationalist, and multi-generational in scope. A novel coronavirus that principally attacks the lungs has killed nearly 170,000 people in the United States alone to date, a disproportionate number of whom are Black, Brown, and poor as militarized police forces shoot tear gas to suffocate the lungs of black protesters and their accomplices who are working to downwardly redistribute breath on our streets across the nation. Could there be any more vivid an illustration of the necropolitical power of the racial states and its mortal claims to dominion over the insurgent body and its sensory states? This is a stark reminder that our senses and embodied social lives remain vital to any violent recruitment effort. 
And yet in the face of so much spectacularized state violence, there is infinite tenderness, abundance, and unadulterated care everywhere in the air today too. Here in the US, we're watching as organizers putting their, putting their vulnerable bodies on the line for their comrades, passing out provisions like masks and hand sanitizer, rejecting liberal reformist disciplinary co-optations of their struggles, practicing mutual aid as they tear down white supremacist monuments and extinguish the cops and courts in our collective hearts and minds. Powerful abolitionist experiments and prefigurative practices abound. If only we could transform our collective frequencies to better respond to their call. These rebellious expressions of organizing represent urgent appeals to revitalize our collective political imaginations in the here and now, to become more experimental in our tactics and strategies of insurgency to both the global ends of the forever wars on terror and their domestic reverberations, which are felt most acutely through mass incarceration, mass deportation, and police violence in the United States. Turning the tide against endless warfare also necessitates a critical embrace of radical imagination and speculative thinking of visionary artists in order to transport us beyond what Achille Mbembe has called the great chokehold of the present. In this context, I welcome the opportunity to reflect on the power and promise of creative archives of insurgent art and minoritarian aesthetics. Insurgent aesthetic works can inspire social movements laboring to dismantle oppressive regimes of racism, heteropatriarchy, Islamophobia, empire, and class exploitation that are at the root of inequality, precarity, and violence in its many forms. Throughout insurgent aesthetics, I try to mine a rich field of expressive culture and artistic responses to 21st century global warfare in a search for forms of aesthetic possibility that open up alternative modes of knowing, sensing, living, escaping, and feeling in the forever war. If the forever war is an assault on the human sensorium for citizens, subjects, survivors, and refugees of US empire alike, I've chosen to center a queer feminist analysis of the performative body of the racialized and dispossessed in order to reveal a complex insurgency against empire's built sensorium. The imaginative works of art that I call insurgent aesthetics reassemble vision with the disqualified knowledges, histories, geographies, and memories preserved by the so-called lower senses of empires gendered racialized others. In so doing, I show how the minoritarian body serves as a critical site for the acquisition of unorthodox and often unexpected political knowledge about security, terrorism, and war. A major goal of my book is not only to offer a diagnosis of how neoliberal security and warfare have constrained dominant life worlds and accelerated human suffering via the atrocities of war, but also to illuminate how these artists provide the designs for sensing other more disobedient and arresting ways of being in the world. In my close readings, I offer the concept of a queer calculus as a critical framework to account for the state's differential valuation of human life. If calculus implies a cold accounting of wartime facts and figures, these cultural workers instead upend such an accounting, querying the process of archival production so as to constitute a different, and we might say more sensuous mode of reckoning with the ultimately unaccountable devastations of war. A queer calculus of the forever war makes intimate what is rendered distant, renders tactile what is made invisible, and makes unified what is divided thereby conjuring up forms of embodied critique that envision a collective world within and beyond US empires, perverse logics of global carcerality, security, and warfare. Now, if you're still with me, uh, and I hope you are, 
out there in the world. Um, I'm going to move now from this larger frame about the book to actually ground my discussion uh, about the idea of queer calculus in the work of two multimedia artists in particular. Um, on the left there, you'll see New York City-based Iraqi-American visual artist Wafa Bilal and the North American-based white American artist and painter Ellen O'Hara Slavic. I'm gonna explore how their works offer a meditation on the violences of US imperial war making across the long 20th century and how those acts of war have devastated humans, animals and social ecologies in the greater Middle East region in particular. Together, these artists powerfully attested the violent expanse of post-war US geopolitical power around the globe and make palpable what I call the sensorial life of empire. In his contemporary Arab diasporic aesthetic practices, Wafa Bilal generates alternative sensory knowledges about the US racial security states and the violent effects of the forever war. The crucial force of Bilal's artwork hinges primarily on the pain that he inflicts on his own body, especially his skin, that organ of touch and feeling that connects the body to the social world and provides a key platform for his artistic interventions. Um, so as I said, the skin, right? Um, let me get rid of this, this and move back here if I can. Oh, I've gone too far. You can see my Michelle Obama meme here um, because part of what I want to talk about in a second is the move from the Bush era ground troops um, under the Bush two era of the early 2000s um, to the, 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 the realm of aerial counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and drone strikes under the Obama era, which of course we're revisiting now um, with the latest news about Kamala Harris coming and joining um, the ticket of Biden and more on that in the Q&A. But back to Bilal. Um, so part of what I want to say about these artistic interventions is that in these reparative works of insurgent aesthetics, we can analyze race and gendered embodiment and the artist's manipulation of the senses in order to account for and allegorize the subjective experiences and lived vulnerabilities of populations that are both produced and obscured by U.S. security regimes. So again, if we want to understand modern security politics and practices, particularly the modes of intelligence gathering and killing technologies perfected in the domestic and international contexts of US forever wars, including drone warfare, then we need an alternate approach to the maps of strategic thinkers and security analysts. When read alongside the escalating use of drone technologies in US military operations across the greater Middle East, Bilal's performance projects allow for a more sophisticated understanding of the ethical and affective relations that can emerge between Americans and Iraqis under the conditions of US security and warfare. This insight is framed by the interplay between what's up in the air, namely the discourses shaping the US's use of aerial surveillance and 21st century military technologies writ large, and what's on the skin as a way of capturing the painful intimacies of seemingly incommensurate peoples, histories, and geographies brought together in the crosshairs of forever warfare. So these two modes reveal two distinct but intersecting cartographic representations of landscape and the human terrain, as I'll show, with very different implications and blueprints for the future. Bilal is one artist who uses his own body to map the uneven contours of human vulnerability in times of war uncovering the intimate and affective politics of US imperial violence, those animated traces and disqualified secrets discarded by official accounts of the war, as well as the queer calculus of knowledge, affect, and affiliation that these violent projects have engendered. 
So a 2010 performance then by Bilal entitled And Counting highlights the queer calculus of the forever war by examining the ongoing US-led massacre of Iraqi civilians, including the artist's own brother, Haji, who was killed by a drone missile strike in their hometown of Kufa, Iraq in 2004. So in this piece, originally staged in New York City, the artist transforms his body into a canvas by tattooing the names of Iraqi cities on his back. And then during a 24 hour live performance, tattooing 105,000 dots onto this borderless map, solemnly reciting the names of Iraqis and Americans killed in the US occupation to date since 2003. Audience members stand as witnesses. 5,000 dots are marked first in red ink to represent dead American soldiers. The remaining 100,000 dots memorializing the official Iraqi death toll from the war to date are invisible ultraviolet ink, invisible unless viewed under a black light. I'm gonna show you that image in a little bit. So as this cursory description suggests, Bilal's piece asks its audience whose death counts in times of war erecting what Nafirti Tadiyar has called living memories, living histories as opening into other futures. The performance also elicits timely questions about the CIA and Pentagon's proliferating use of drone strikes in targeted assassinations across Iraq and the borderlands region of AFPAC. Bilal's own sensate body and pain with ink pressed into bare skin depicts my focus on how we might glean evidence of the histories, geographies, and sentiments of those disappeared by US global warfare in tactile and corporeal forms. Indeed, bodily pain and self-mutilation provide a consistent conceptual thread throughout Bilal's performance of war. Bilal first gained international recognition for his 2007 piece, Domestic Tension, where he confined himself to a gallery space in Chicago for an entire month, inviting the public to visit a website where they could shoot him by remotely firing a paintball gun at his body. Originally known by the more straightforward and provocative title, Shoot an Iraqi, this interactive performance piece had more than 65,000 online users fire at the artist by month's end transforming this very virtual experience about collective unfeeling toward militarized warfare into a very tactile experience, most of all for its subjects. Bilal's self-imposed spatial confinement conjures the dilemma that contemporary Iraqis face every day, including his immediate family living in domestic confinement due to foreign occupation and sectarian conflict. The revised title, Domestic Tension, itself captures both the securitized homeland as it has been reconfigured under US-led occupation and gendered experiences of colonialism, militarism, and war. Recognized for his controversial video installations, Bilal made national headlines again in November of 2010 after announcing that he would have a, have a very tiny fist-sized camera surgically installed into the back of his head for a year. The embedded camera captured a photograph every minute of the artist's daily life and then transmitted that visual record to a website. The inaugural images were displayed at the Arab Museum of Modern Art in Doha, Qatar, as part of its new permanent collection, which includes more than 6,000 works by Arab artists from North Africa to the Gulf since the 1920s. Third Eye subtends and sutures the technological apparatus of photography onto the artist's own body. The hundreds of arbitrary images captured by this cyborg creation compose a visual record that awaits interpretation and reception. 
Bilal's insurgent aesthetics is especially timely in the context of social media piracy and data drops as WikiLeaks released thousands of classified national security documents and as Facebook and Twitter, Twitter have played increasingly visible roles in anti-state protests in countries like Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Iran, and in black and indigenous-led revolts here in the US. Third Eye explores the ethical contours of how new technology has transformed the balance of power between governments and their citizens, a story which is of course quickly evolving in our contemporary context. With its simultaneous backward glance and bodily subjection, Bilal's piece asks us to confront visuality's tyranny and renewed salience in elevated surveillance and global security policing programs, as well as the legacy of pain, humiliation, and subordination in performance art and tactical media practices by racialized and minoritarian subjects. So I bring up these two other art pieces briefly here to demonstrate how Bilal's larger ensemble of works exemplifies the complex ways in which diasporic expressive culture can diagnose and provide alternatives to the U.S. security state's geopolitical and epistemological maps. In the remaining discussion, I want to explore how Bilal's work further asks us to consider how the visual field itself is constitutive of both the logic and materiality of war. This is true not only in the case of pilotless drones over the conflict zones of Iraq and Afpac, where cameras are quite literally appended onto missiles and bombs, but also in what he names the comfort zone, those more mundane settings far from killing fields in which war enlists and acts upon our senses. Thus, an encounter with Bilal's artwork elicits a transformation in our affective relationship to dominant views from above. So my focus on the aerial perspective is central to US global counterinsurgency regimes joins a range of post-colonial feminist cultural critics in a collective effort to challenge the systemic embrace of the visual and cultural and intellectual responses to US global warfare and surveillance. This concern stems from the argument that visual and conceptual frames have contributed to the manufacture and obliteration of populations as objects of knowledge and targets of war. The links between vision and epistemology have been well theorized and rehearsed. From these studies, we learned that perspectile vision is in fact constitutive to the logic of surveillance and the materiality of war. As the eye became the privileged organ of knowledge and authority, the power to see became equated with the power to know and the power to dominate. Throughout the 20th century, we see this enduring alliance between vision and war. As military fields increasingly became reconfigured as, veal, as fields of visual perception, preparations for war were incre increasingly indistinguishable from preparations for making a film. Ray Chow, for instance, notes how war would mean the production of maximal visibility and illumination for the purpose of maximal destruction. We might conceive of the forever war then not only as a struggle over oil, water, and the resources of globalization, but also quite centrally over the control of the global image and data worlds. So given the dense interconnectivity between vision, knowledge, and warfare, what system of knowing and writing might adequately address both the violence of the imperial state tries to render invisible and the invisible obscene, as scholar Anne McClintock has put it, of civilian populations exposed endlessly to this violence. I contend that we benefit from orienting our attention away from the visual and discursive frames of war and toward analyses that feature lesser studied senses, including touch and sound. These extra visual sensory relations have become newly vital to US security governments, both as actual military weapons, and of course we can think of the use of music and torture in Guantanamo, for example, 
and as resources for diasporic public cultures and contemporary art practices. So rather than dispense with the visual altogether, I'm suggesting that we attend more closely to the ambiguities and particularities of the visual experience produced by minoritarian subjects who are responding to these conditions in their artwork as they reveal alternate clues for knowing and mapping the world. So what the aesthetic works of Wafa Bilal then make possible is an alternative sensorial relationship to the forever war. And counting is offered as a way of archiving both personal and collective traumas. Bilal is a blacklisted political refugee from Saddam era Iraq, mourning the loss of his brother, who was killed by a drone strike for simply being in the way. The so-called collateral damage that belies the war machines in precision. Bilal's use of tattooing and body art here in this piece is particularly instructive. First, we must contend with the map of Iraq tattooed onto Bilal's body. Although maps regularly function as instruments of centralized surveillance, information retrieval, and war making, the borderless cartography that Bilal imprints onto his back resonates instead, I think, with what literary historian Jonathan Flatley has called an affective map. That is a map that not only gives us a view of a terrain shared with others in the present, but also traces the paths, resting places, dead ends, and detours we might share with those who came before us. Following Freud and Benjamin, Flatley's affective mapping evokes modernity's new historical relation, a collective affective attachment where one might ask, who shares my losses and who is subject to the same social forces? Flatley's approach here, I think, allows for a reconsideration of Bilal's individual art practices as part of an epistemological project engaged in a politics of knowledge, one that has collective and social effects. As viewers and witnesses to encounting, we are being asked to think about individual and collective pain, sorrow, mourning, and loss, and hope concurrently. To think of Bilal's pain to give it shape and meaning is then necessarily to attempt an account of collective pain and loss for Iraqis around the globe. A diaspora whose connective tissue is forged in bloodshed, violence, occupation, and permanent war. Bilal's performances of pain and mourning are hence not solely metaphors, but also evidence of the historicity of his and our subjectivity. Yet it's important to note that the source of this affective connection is the artist's own skin. As I said, that organ of touch and feeling that sutures the body to the social world. Thus, while this performance is surely a visual and sonic experience for his audience, it is only through the tactile where we are asked to confront Bilal's body and pain that this affective relation to past histories is being drawn. Through touch, not vision, Bilal provides affective relationality and newly conceptualizes the self in relationship to others. His haptic impulse to touch the past by charting the dead ends and detours shared with those who came before him thus becomes crucial in specifying his sensorial interventions, as it suggests another way of archiving the forever war. Now, Bilal's calculus of pain here demands a complex relationship to the senses for minoritarian subjects. We achieve better conceptual clarity on the operations of killing and violence perfected in the theaters of the forever war by isolating touch and other modes of affective transmission that circumvent the visual field that might even contradict the scopic altogether. The critical import of turning to the tactile realm here stems from the hope that knowing through touch might elicit an alternative, sometimes contradictory conceptualization of social relations than that offered by visually based epistemologies. 
Sensations can reveal feelings otherwise inaccessible to the regime of the visible and make possible other ways of organizing collective social life beyond security logics. The idea here is not simply to discard the visual register, which of course I'm saying is embedded in these larger processes of war making, but to elaborate a fuller epistemology that understands touch in relation to sight and other sensorial processes. So then if we return to this performance piece then, we must question what this borderless map on Bilal's back is really supposed to represent. Here it is. What is the unspoken calculus of the value of a life and death on a planet, on our planet? Um, with Bilal's work, we're forced to contend with a failure of numbers to represent the disappeared and the relations of force that produce such disappearances. Of course, we can never really know how many people have died in the name of security and freedom in the terror wars that the U.S. currently ongoing wages. There's no evidence of that in the material archive of war. We have body counts and estimated death tolls, but these don't quite account for those losses, as we're seeing again in the context of COVID-19. Indeed, the value of numerical calculations in collective efforts both to wage and to memorialize war is dubious at best, as Judith that Butler outlines in her, frame, in her book, Frames of War. This fact suggests that the failure of enumeration and quantitative reasoning in order to understand state violence fully and the populations most vulnerable to its destructive force. This is part of what I'm calling a queer calculus and the need for a stranger calculus in which to engage with a collective reckoning of war. So what I think is called for instead is a sociology of the trace. Proposed by sociologists Herman Gray and Maka Gomez-Baris, this method offers a way to attenuate the distance between empirically social worlds and those things that are not easily found through methodologies that attempt to empirically account for social reality. In contrast to the sociological imperative towards generalizability, systematicity, and a normative notion of rigor, Gray and Gomez-Baris suggest an alternative methodological approach that points toward inscriptions, traces, the audible, the inaudible, and what they call hauntings as methodological necessities, rather than those things that do not quite fit into overtly social categories. Their emphasis on archives of traces and inscriptions speaks to the larger political dimensions of my anti-colonial queer feminist approach in this talk and in my book more generally. By connecting Bilal's abstract performance works to histories and theories of aerial bombardment, this project attempts to decenter the primacy of the visual given its centrality in US global security logics. It, it tends instead to extra visual sensory and haptic relations as a way of attenuating the distance between the counterinsurgency views from above and from below. Bilal's work reveals that positivist framings of loss, including death counts, cannot, cannot contain what it seeks to make visible or readable. While this dominant necropolitical frame of war jettisons the delegitimated alternative versions of reality, it's busily generating what Judith Butler calls a rubbish heap whose animated debris provides the potential resources for resisting. So given that the US global security archive continues to violently un unfold today, even as it refuses to see itself as an archive, I wanna follow the specters that haunt the animated and deratified traces of killing. This approach provides a trenchant methodological antidote to archival-based studies of US racial formation, state secrecy, and imperial warfare. It also demonstrates how conventional representations of the death toll fail to capture the complex amalgam of memory, imagination, and pain in queer diasporic visual art. 
So if my queer account of Bilal's insurgent aesthetics rejects the politics of enumeration, in its place, we are left to confront Bilal's back under blacklight. That image that I promised you, here's first the map, and then here it is again under blacklight. As you can see here, his back was transformed by the tattoo performance into a craggy terrain that looks like the remnants of a surface scarred by cluster bombs and missile strikes. There are no numbers present in this image. Instead, the tattoo assemblage conjures burn marks, a starry night, a galaxy from outer space, or satellite imagery, which is all too pervasive in this era of global positioning systems. Yet we must recall that Bilal's own view from above is a cartographic representation that is permanently inscribed on his skin, a reminder that the abstract queer calculus of the forever war is often materially inscribed quite literally on the minoritarian cultural worker's body and pain. So while critically assessing Bilal's craters back under black light, I'm transported to another haunting aesthetic archive that confronts the material effects of bombing campaigns and their aftermaths that I want to turn to next. Alan O'Hara Slavic's drawings and painting series titled Protesting Cartography or Places the United States Has Bombed, 1998 to 2005, offers an important intertext to Bilal's embodied performances that I want to discuss by way of conclusion today. So moving from a formalist analysis of diasporic performance works in the work of Bilal to painting and drawing in Slavic necessitates a more expansive interdisciplinary lens and toolkit to assess the continuities and discontinuities across artistic forms and mediums that is consonant with my queer feminist scavenger methodology for insurgent aesthetics more generally in my book. Composed on paper from ink, watercolor, graphite, and other media. Slavic's 60 drawings and protesting cartography likewise confront our collective so-called failure of imagination about what bombs do to populations, bodies, and topographies. Working from an eclectic archive of military surveillance imagery, aerial photographs, battle plans, and maps, Slavic reimagines these geographies and landscapes, disengaging them from what she terms authority's clenched fist. In the process, her drawings composed a sustained archive of largely uninterrupted US aerial bombing campaigns since the 1940s from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which of course um, this week marks the 75th anniversary of those two bombings, to Vienna, to Vienna France, Korea, Vietnam, Vieques, Laos, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Haiti, El Salvador, Iran, Grenada, Pakistan, and even sites closer to home, including Almogordo, New Mexico, which is the site of the first atomic explosion in 1945. In this way, Slavic's work powerfully echoes my argument about the U.S. forever war across the global Asias. Together, these images attest to the unimaginable breadth and uninterrupted violent expanse of post-war US geopolitical power. I'm drawn to Slavic series not only for the dreamy aesthetic of her paintings, which are often swathed in sumptuous primary colors, but because the aerial view that she, that she constructs differs so dramatically from the austere, bone-chilling cold aerial photography that we have come to expect in the digital age of Google Earth. That dominant view has re-educated our senses on how to look at and think about territories besieged by bombs. While both of these visual representations are technically views from above, they imply radically distinct trajectories and affective connections. Slavic notes that even if she could make photographs, she would not because there are already too many photographs, she says, too immediate, too true, too real, and too brief, countries and lives reduced to singular images. 
So working in the medium of drawing and painting instead of photography, um, instead of uh, performance in photography like Bilal, Slavic astutely critiques the violent and singularizing effect of digital photographic representations. Her series, however, is even more prescient given Wafa Bilal's later performances, challenging the US military myth of so-called precision and precise targeting in drone warfare. To capture this contradiction, Slavic uses a bleeding, a crucial bleeding effect to her imagery in formalist aesthetic that you can see here. She says, quote, ink dropped onto wet paper like blood stains on damp cloth. When it dries, this becomes the foundation upon which to tell a violent story. I use this ground of abstract swirling or bleeding to depict the manner in which bombs do not stay within their intended borders. Depleted uranium and chemical agents contaminate the soil, traveling in water, and currents of air for decades. Bombs lay the groundwork for genocide, cancer, more war, terrorism, widows, orphans, and a vengeful populace on all sides of conflict." Unquote. So Slavic's analysis of her own aesthetic practice captures how bombs rarely stay within their circumscribed borders. The abstract swirling or bleeding in her paintings belies the unintended but all too pervasive consequences of late modern warfare. Indeed, this work reminds us that it was not the Saddam Hussein regime, but successive U.S. administrations that freely resorted to using weapons of mass destruction, beginning with the 1991 Gulf War, including incendiary bombs like napalm and depleted uranium. Attending to the toxic aftermaths of these histories of U.S. aerial bombing in formalist terms, both Slavic's and Bilal's fine art and performance works thus construct an affective relation with people's landscapes and ecologies deemed by the U.S. security state as so-called collateral damage. Slavic's insights on the perennial bleeding, unintentional and collateral nature of US forever war violence resonate further with a key aspect of my March 2011 interview with Bilal, during which the artist recounted how he was initially upset that this original digital pixelated rendering, I don't have it right here, but if you remember the digital pixelated rendering of the map that was to be tattooed on his back, did not ultimately match the final product that you see on his body here. During the performance, the tattoo artists realized there was not enough space on his back to appropriately arrange the dots across his skin according to his prefabricated image. Despite the gulf between the abstracted digital map he had envisioned and the tattooed landscape that ultimately manifested on his body, Bilal was pleased because the disconnect spoke to the realities and randomness of waging war. This gulf between expectation and reality is, of course, an affective experience that U.S. military planners certainly encountered and instigated when they hastily la landed in Iraq in 2003, as did British forces in Arabia in the 1920s, and so on. In this light, the supposed failed tattoo performance and the unintentional insurgent aesthetic of non-alignment that it produced offers a potent reminder that we should resist the impulse to cede unwarranted ground to US air power as a totalizing nexus of domination. In short, there's nothing precise nor expert about US forever wars. And this imprecision of wartime violence leads to a possible methodology of resistance for the dispossessed. The disorientation produced by the fog of war, of course, speaks volumes to what Slavic suggests is the affective force behind her own drawings, which start with ink or watercolor, but bleed and drip in unanticipated and unlikely ways. There is one final aspect of Slavic's commentary that I want to linger on in light of my book's argument that a queer feminist analytic 
uh, critique of the bodily, sensorial, and affective registers of violent warfare is a crucial contribution of the insurgent aesthetics that I've assembled here. She writes, I do hope that, quote, that the, the cellular references that appear in many of my drawings, replicated stains in the background, connected tissue in the foreground, concentric targets like microscopic views of damaged cells, all of this conjure, conjures up the buried dead and deadly diseases as a result of warfare. We know that more civilians die in war than combatants. We know that uranium-tipped missiles cause radiation released disease like cancer, and that landmines remove limbs from innocent children years after the conflict." Unquote. So attending to the unintended bodily and sedimented forms of violence summoned by U.S. counterinsurgency and counterterror practices, Slavic's remarks on the toxic toll of U.S. warfare serve as a powerful reminder of how the violence of war devastates humans, animals, and social ecologies, to say nothing of the exact nuclear nightmare of radioactive contamination and hazardous waste left behind by U.S. weapons and bombs in Iraq since the first Persian Gulf War. This fact of environmental destruction attests to the potential and urgency of insurgent aesthetics to make visible and palpable the toxic contradictions of the forever war. So in light of Slavic's interventions, I wanna return finally to Bilal's tattoo performance, if I may, and specifically to his back by way of conclusion, in order to underscore the salience of analytically isolating the extra visual and haptic sensory relations and formal processes in insurgent aesthetics. So while there is no official tradition of body art in Iraq, Bilal's use of tattooing powerfully captures the missing history of the disappeared. In an interview, the artist recounts how while living in a Saudi refugee camp after escaping Iraq in 1991, he was granted asylum in the United States on the condition that the American delegation be allowed to interrogate his brother, who was also in the camp. One of the US translators who befriended Bilal informed him that Americans would not take three kinds of people, criminals, communists, and people with tattoos. Bilal's brother, of course, had a tattoo. And the reason that he got it was related to the war. Because during the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, many young people lost family members on the front lines and their bodies came back unidentifiable. So young Iraqis started getting tattoos of their names and cities, sometimes on one or two of their body parts, so that if they were killed and their bodies mutilated beyond recognition, their families would still be able to identify them. If the Americans saw the tattoo on his brother's arm that night, this inscription of a future death yet to come, they would not grant Bilal asylum. So that night, his brother decided to burn the tattoo off his arm using a hot spoon. Bilal's vividly painful recollections from the camp reveals a paradoxical queer calculus at work here. In order to gain access to refuge in the United States, his brother needed to efface or erase this other unseen record of the U.S. proxy war in the greater Middle East, as evidenced by U.S. participation in and financing of the Iran-Iraq war off of his body. Bilal's story captures the nexus of the body and pain and the violence of the regulatory security state as it reveals the somatic and sensorial life of empire. The burned off tattoo provides material evidence of power's whereabouts. What lies outside the visual archive then are these sensorial traces, memories, feelings that conjure individual, familial, and collective histories beyond official war records. 
analyzing the formal and experiential dimensions of Bilal's creative works through queer feminist and affect studies, thus better captures the sensorial logics of imperial governance and its manifold resistance. Paying attention to the tactile nature of Bilal's performances in particular elucidates an alternative sensorial logic through which we might begin to access those long submerged and entangled histories of violent conflict. Such an approach reveals further how the discarded remnants and accumulated debris of dominant US security logics comprise the raw materials for sensing and feeling and that's new it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series Thank on you. the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.